the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. It's 4.02 AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Good afternoon. It's Tim DeMoss. Thanks for tuning in. Forecast calling for clouds basically all weekend with rain off and on. 44 the low tonight, 50 the high tomorrow, 42 the high for Sunday. Sixers are home tonight against Indiana, 7.30 tip. Flyers on the road, taking on Edmonton, 9 o'clock there. And the Eagles are at the Rams in Sunday night football at 8.20. Carson Wentz has a stress injury to his back. Not going to need surgery, apparently, but it's going to take a few months to heal properly. So it's questionable whether he's going to play or not. He is traveling with the team, and uh, if they decide not to go with him, looks like Nick Foles will jump back in the saddle. So we'll see how that plays out. Looking forward to having uh, Dr. Everett Piper join our program. He has a book out called Not a Daycare. He is the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and uh, really he's been all over the place, lots of media outlets. And so we're going to talk with him a little later on in the hour. But before we uh, have Dr. Everett on, or Dr. Piper, I should say, on the program, we wanted to revisit yesterday uh, Rebecca Alonzo. She is the author of a book called The Devil in Pew Number 7. I will try to recap this briefly for you, and then we're going to bring Rebecca on to have a little bit of an epilogue because we didn't get to finish a couple of things that I think are pretty important. Um, back in the 1969, her father, Robert, along with his wife, Ramona, and uh, son Daniel and Rebecca moved to uh, Sellerstown to serve as the pastor. I think that the parents moved and they were born there. But uh, the main thing is they were in a small community, eager to welcome them. Just one exception to this new pastor. Glaring at him from pew number seven every week was a powerful local man named Horry Watts. He was obsessed with controlling the church and the community. Rebecca's father and family um stood in his way, so to speak, uh, specifically her father, starting with how his wife was the church treasurer, Mrs. Watts's wife. And uh, Rebecca's dad, Pastor Robert, became aware of some mishandling of funds and things. And so he challenged him on that. And there were some other ways that Mr. Watts was challenged. And perhaps the rising popularity of Rebecca's father and the church as it was growing and the, and the congregation seemed to really appreciate them Mr. Watts started feeling control slipping away. He was used to being the big dog in a small town or big fish in a small pond, as they say, and was determined to get his control back and uh, maybe get some revenge at kind of being called out in front of other people who had not really challenged him before. So that led to prank calls at the beginning to Rebecca's family's house many times every day. And then it escalated into things like drive-by shootings and even dynamite being set off. Ten different times in a two-and-a-half-year window. Obviously, all that very stressful because it also took place over time. Just when you thought maybe the harassment was going to stop, another would start up again. 
then just a few days shy of Easter in 1978, there was a woman living with Rebecca and her family because this woman's husband had been abusive. And Mr. Watts, the gentleman who's out to get them, manipulated that man to go into Rebecca's house armed with three guns and open fire. Uh, Rebecca's mom lost her life. Her father was severely injured and did survive, but suffered from PTSD and died a few years later. Rebecca, our guest, just seven years old at the time, her brother, three. Uh, and she, sa- she shared a lot of the story on a program yesterday, especially on the topic of forgiveness, which was a big reason we wanted Rebecca on this time of year. It can be important as families come together or don't come together sometimes around the holidays because there are divisions. So we talked about uh, also the importance of Scripture and true forgiveness, including with the shooter himself, Harris Williams is his name. So you can catch all of that in yesterday's podcast at WFIL.com. But after the program, our, our fine producer, the hardest working producer in Philadelphia radio between four and five said to me, well, what happened with Mr. Watts? And I realized we didn't get back to that by the end of the program too much. We delved in a lot of other things. We didn't get back to Mr. Watts. So Rebecca, kind enough to join us to continue our conversation and just shed some light on what happened with the mastermind, if you will, behind all this stuff. Go ahead, Rebecca. Okay. Okay. Well, Mr. Watts, um, you know, he, he got away with a lot of stuff. Like you said, he was a powerful man, a lot of money, a lot of political con- control, um, county commissioner. He was thinking that he was scot-free, you know, after the shooting and we left and moved to Mobile, Alabama. But one of the FBI agents, Charles Mercer, that had been on the case uh, for a couple of years would not give up. Like if you watch uh, CSI and those kind of shows on TV, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll tell one of the agents, you know, you're too emotionally involved, you need to step back. You know, and that's yeah. what happened with Charles Mercer. He got emotionally involved. He saw a, a, a pastor doing good for the church and community, a loving uh, wife, um, you know, two little kids that were being terrorized by Mr. Watts. And so he would not give up, even after the shooting, after we lost my mom, um, my dad being injured and us moving to Alabama. He would not give up. Mr. Mercer would not give up. So he would keep my dad up to speed. He would call him from time to time and just say, hey, you know, I've got this evidence. I've got this. I'm working on the case. Don't lose hope, you know, that that Mr. Watts is going to be brought to justice. A couple of years after the murder trial, and like I said, we were living in Alabama, uh, Charles Mercer called and said, I want you to know that I have enough evidence compiled to, to have Mr. Watts convicted by a federal grand jury, wow. which and to, is huge. And to this, point, huge. to this point, it was just the, the shooter, Harris Williams, who was arrested. I mean, the, we didn't even talk about that yesterday, really, but he committed the crime and was apprehended right away. Yes, he was convicted and, and sentenced to life in prison plus 15 years. But made no mention um, that he was put up, you know, someone put him up to it. Right. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So no wonder but, Mr. Watts and, thinks he's getting away with it. Absolutely. And because Harris was on pain meds, because he'd been in a, a knife fight a week before, so he was drinking, he's on pe- pain meds for my stabbing. Um, you know, he barges in our house, shoots my parents. He got off on second-degree murder. 
Hmm. because he was intoxicated. But he could tell you everything that he did before he came to my house, which was totally premeditated. He could totally remember that. But he has, until this day, said he does not remember the actual shooting part. Rebecca Alonzo is our guest, author of The Devil in Pew Number 7, and this just uh, Harris Williams, the shooter, on yesterday's program, you did go into a lot more of what happened with him. So people can listen to yesterday's podcast to find out more. So go ahead. Yes. And so he was sentenced to prison, life in prison, plus 15 years. Then Mr. Watts, two years later, Mr. Mercer, the FBI agent, has Mr. Watts indicted by a federal grand jury, convicted of the bombings, um, and was sentenced to 15 years. So Mr. Watts is sentenced to 15 years. Both men who hurt our family were both in prison. So the PTSD that my dad was, you know, the war continued in his mind, even though we had left North Carolina and moved to Alabama. There was still this guilt, I think, in my dad's mind of not being able to protect his wife and kids and should we have left. And even though they both, you know, felt like they should stay and, you know, so he was in and out of hospitals and, um, you know, we just thought Mr. Watts is in prison. He's going to pay for what he did, even though 15 years was just a slap on the hand. By the way, he was friends with the judge, wow. which was also corrupt. The judge should have recused himself, didn't, um, which is probably why Watts only got 15 years. So, you know, as I discussed yesterday, my dad ends up passing away when I'm um, 14. And then a couple of years later, we ended up, um, my dad's sister, Aunt Dot, that I talked about that took care of us when we were little, she adopted my brother and I and mm. raised, finished raising us as a single parent, working full-time, taking care of my brother and I and her parents. I still don't know how she did it. I mean, she is just going to have the biggest reward in heaven <laughs> for, for taking care of all of us, and I, I still thank her for it. But she uh, adopted us when I was 16, and about a year later, I got a phone call. And she uh, answered the phone, Aunt Dot answered the phone, and she said, it's Mr. Watts. Now, I had had not seen him since I was a little girl, you know. So I'm thinking, okay, he's in prison. He's been in prison about five years. They must be, you know, get to call people, and so he's calling me. So I got on the phone, and I said, hello. And he goes, hello, Becky, this is Mr. Watts. And this deep, gruff voice that kind of shook me to my toes that I remembered as a little girl. Um, just how mean he was, you know, and gruff. And he had, he was married and had nine kids. You wouldn't think someone with nine kids could could be so hateful um, yeah. and, and come against another family when he had his own family, but he did. So he, he, he asked me, he said, you know, I, I want to know if you will forgive me. And... I was able to say because of my parents' example that I talked about yesterday, because of their love, their forgiveness, that they lived what they preached, I was able to say, Mr. Watts, we forgave you a long time ago. And he sat on the phone and cried and said he was sorry for what he put my family through. He said, your dad was a good man and did not deserve it. Now, I, 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 was, I could not believe this was a fall on the Damascus Road conversation where Saul was killing people in the name of God, you know, this religious leader. And Mr. Watts would even put scriptures in some of the threatening letters. I mean, he was so much like Saul in his misguided attempt to, quote, 
correct things. So he, um, you know, sat on the phone and cried, and, you know, I, I listened. And, and so, you know, he said, I, I just want you to know how sorry I am and also that I'm not in prison anymore. This, this had been five years. Out of the 15. But he was sen- sentenced, and I said, I was thinking to myself, oh, Lord, I'm going to have to forgive this man again. Like, he's not in prison. Are you kidding me? Fifteen years was not enough time. And so he said, actually, I only served one year, and I got out. He said, but during that one year, I found a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that just rocked me to the core because it had been, that was the answer to our prayer. On my knees, next to my bed, as a little girl, praying with my mother, Lord Jesus, please save Mr. Watts. Please take the anger and the bitterness and the rage away from him so that he can come to Jesus. He was set in pew number seven every Sunday. He heard my dad, who was an evangelist at heart, share the gospel, extend the salvation call. Every Sunday, we had altar calls. And he, he, he never, he could not step into that. He couldn't, he couldn't um, humble himself at that point to receive that salvation. But it took him, you know, going to prison, being embarrassed, not having control anymore of the situation for him to finally bow his knee to the cro- at the cross. So that was like, wow, my mom and dad gave their lives so that these people could come to Jesus, you know. And that community was still going through a lot of pain and hurt, even 30 years later when I went back to um, do research, and your brother Bob, my co-writer, went with me to do um, interviews with people. They would still just hurt, pain, loss. We loved your parents. We still can't believe we lost them that way. You know, that kind of thing. So that was an amazing turnaround for Mr. Watts to make that phone call and tell me what had happened in his life. And then he would send us letters after that, and I included one in the book. And um, one of the things that he says is, if I don't, I'm paraphrasing. um, Oh, actually, I'll read it. He said, and my best wishes and prayers go with you. And if we never meet here on earth, I do hope and pray we will all meet in heaven when this life is over. May I have your prayers with mine. May God bless you all. So totally 180 turn. And that is the, the mercy of God right there for him and for us. Because a few years later, he ended up dying of cancer. And I said, wow, can you imagine my mom and dad walking down the streets of gold, turn a corner, and there's Mr. Watts. Um, <laughs> and then just. Saying, wow, the mercy of God never ends. It never ends. Rebecca Alonzo, the uh, author of The Devil in Pew Number 7, kind enough to rejoin us as a little bit of a P.S. to yesterday's program. You can catch a podcast of that on our site. We'll wrap up with Rebecca here after our short break on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. It's the Tim DeMoss Show podcast, available at WFIL.com. Thanks for listening. Coming up on 420, the Tim DeMoss Show, and our conversation with Rebecca Alonzo wrapping up. Uh, she's the author of The Devil in Pew Number 7, an incredible story, a lot of drama and uh, trauma and healing and forgiveness. 
your mom's memoirs, uh, your mom, you know, who passed away uh, in the shooting, uh, her memoirs are in the book. So maybe we didn't get to talk about that yesterday. One reason I wanted to have you back on just to share a little bit about about those memoirs and and what role they play. Well, it was really um, a sweet gift that Aunt Dot gave me years later in my 20s. She said, I've got something for you. I waited until I thought you were old enough. And she handed me a brown uh, manila envelope. And on the front of it, it said, Ramona's Autobiography. And I opened it up. And in my mother's own handwriting, about 26 pages, was her account of being single meeting my dad, the hilarious way that happened, how quickly they met and got married, and then then hitting the road as evangelist. So she started with love in in her writing, meeting my dad, falling in love with him, and then by the 26th page, she ends with love, moving to Whiteville, North Carolina, to accept that pastorship. So her notes is what I used to write Chapter 2 and 3 of the book that no one else knew, that no one else had those kind of details for. And what's really precious to me is that on the first page, she said, I I wanted to hire someone to write this book, but I can't, you know, I can't afford it or I can't find them. So I've elected myself to write this book. And I'm writing it to my darling daughter, Rebecca, who at the tender age of six is too young for her little mind to conceive all the questions that she has. Your mom is talking to you down through the years, dot, dot, dot. What a, what a, what a kiss from God to, to have that. Just when you, absolutely. <laughs> just when you think you, uh, your life has been full of those. Just when you think you, you know, maybe yeah. we're getting, okay. All right. I think I know what I'm, I think I know what's going on. I think I know here comes another surprise. Right. And, you know, there is more of the story that I don't know. Well, first of all, when Bob and I were trying to write this book, we had an 80,000-word count contract with Kendall Publishers, and I was like, okay, Bob, what about this? What about this? And Bob would say, we have to keep moving. We we don't have time to go more into detail in that area, you know. And then I would say, well, what about this? What about that? One of his things that he would say that your brother Bob would say that is funny to me that I've held on to is I would say, well, what about this? You know, it's going to be, you know, upsetting or whatever if we don't include this. And he goes, it's not a hill to die on. We got to move on. (laughs) And I think about that sometimes when we get aggravated and frustrated with people, if you back up and look at it, it's not a hill to die on. It's not really a fight worth having. We have to let it go so that we can move on, because if we don't, we'll get stuck. That is and so... Aunt Dot was the one that taught me that. She's like, you have to keep moving forward. And in Song of Solomon, which that's not a book in the Bible that is real popular, that we read a lot, but in Song of Solomon it says, the little foxes spoil the vine. And I, I did some research on that, and I, I found out that, that, that they were talking about how the little foxes would come in at night to the vineyard, and they would dig around the root of the vine and chew on the roots. And there's this, like, poisonous stuff in their teeth that would kill the vine, and then they would eat the, blo- the, the blossoms off of the vine, so then it can't produce fruit. And I thought, oh, my goodness, how how much does that line up with us spiritually? You know, allowing the little things to come in, 
you know, even in the darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of not recognizing something that slips in, and then it slowly chews away at the root of something good, and it eats the blossom so it can't produce fruit in our lives, so that our lives can't, you know, bring the Lord glory or bring fruit harvest into the kingdom. And so it's the little things sometimes that can fester into the bigger things or that can shut things down. And um, we have to be on the lookout for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rebecca Alonzo, our guest, uh, we're going to do a short break and I, because I, I know I want to wrap up with Rebecca and then uh, kind of conclude. We're going to do it now, but I'm going to pause for a second and get our second break in here. We'll come right back and wrap up with Rebecca Alonzo, the author of The Devil in Pew Number 7. Just a second here on AM560 WFIL. Have a guest you'd like to hear on The Tim DeMoss Show on AM560 WFIL? Email D at WFIL.com. It's 428 AM560 WFIL, WFIL.com. Listen to The Tim DeMoss Show. Thanks for tuning in. Wrapping up our chat with Rebecca Alonzo, the uh, author of the book, The Devil in Pew Number 7. I guess it's worth, I guess, I know, as we wrap up, I really um, think it's worth zeroing in on how you have shared both yesterday when you were on for the whole program and today as we wrap up, uh, how key scripture is to being able to forgive and also how your parents, for example, did not only not retaliate against Mr. Watts, who was, uh, you know, harassing you in tremendously um, horrible ways, but they didn't even speak poorly of him. That's really something. Yeah, well, my mom and dad honored God, and they honored each other, and that's a word that we don't, I don't hear um, preached on much, is honor. And if you honor a person, then you're not going to say anything that would hurt them or devalue them. So I believe that mom and dad, instead of bad-mouthing the people that hurt them, turned to prayer. What does bad-mouthing do? Nothing. It makes the situation worse. You focus on the negative. You're, you're not focused on God. The opposite of that would be praying for them, which actually changes things, changes people, changes situations. Years ago, um, my husband Kenny and I were talking about, you know, everybody does things that gets on each other's nerves. You know, you, you, you grow up one way, you get married, and you're bringing two family histories together under one roof. And so you can annoy each other, you know. And, and I wrote on a sticky note, pray for me, and stuck it on his side of the mirror in our bathroom area. Hmm. And I said, if you could please, when I do something that frustrates you or hurts you, first off, you know that the intent of my heart would never be to hurt you. But if I do, I'm putting this sticky note right here to remind you, please pray for me. And we talk about this. We just talked about this this week. When you have a problem with someone, if you go to Jesus first and you get his perspective and you ask him to help you love people unconditionally, without expectations, without strings attached, and then you lift up that thing that's annoying you or hurting you to God, then he can actually move on that person's heart. He can give you the grace to talk to them about it in love, not in accusation, and you can actually get healing. You can actually bring things to each other's attention in love. But it has to do with timing. It has to do with your heart being right. Sometimes all of that stuff is right. You still talk about it, and the person still doesn't receive it. And then you just have to pray, Lord, give me another opportunity whenever their heart is ready to hear 
so that I can share my heart with them and we can deal with this and move past it if possible. Yeah. Because if you don't deal with things, they just fester resentment, and then you got to blow up. Well, where did that blow up come from? Well, <laughs> yeah. because you've got about five months of resentment in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, and, and that happens a lot to people. They have, you know, just an outburst, and, and, and it's an overreaction to something small. And to me, that is a huge sign of resentment. If you have an overreaction to something small, then there's a root there. Of, of something that happened and they, they didn't talk to you about it. So it, it really is just um, staying on guard against the enemy's traps, schemes, distractions. He's always accusing us to each other. We have to remember what we love about that person, forgive them, ask God to help us love them, encourage them, pray for them, because that's the only thing that's going to change them. We can't change people. We can't, we have no control over a person's behavior but we have control over our response to that behavior. And I just watched my parents do that over and over. They couldn't control Mr. Watts. He was out of control. But they had a choice to make with how they handled it. And thankfully, thankfully, not just to my brother and I, but to that community, they handled it the right way by the Word of God, what God tells us to do about um, hurtful situations in our lives. The Devil in Pew Number Seven is the book. Rebecca Alonzo, the author. Um, on a completely unrelated note, as we wrap up, I understand your mom played the accordion. She did. <laughs> she could actually play any instrument that you put in her hands. She could play. She could read music, but she taught piano lessons. She could read music and she could play by ear. And I did not get any of that talent. <laughs> Well, I I only brought it up as I was reading through some stuff about talk chat when we're to chat for our chat, and uh, my wife's dad uh, is ninety, and he still plays the accordion. And awesome. You don't run into people who play the accordion that often, so I just thought I want to just do this double check on that. So, was that right? The, yeah. Well, it came in handy when they were evangelists because they couldn't lug around a piano. Yeah. So my mom just took her accordion, and so many times she led worship with that accordion. That's all they had. They lived on Indian reservations in Oklahoma and Arkansas and lived off the government-subsidized peanut butter and popcorn with the Indians. And uh, that's what I'm saying. Before they ever got to North Carolina, before they ever experienced any of this, they they just knew that their lives did not belong to them. When they got married, when they said yes to Jesus, and then when they got married and they were on the same page of whatever it takes to get the gospel to people, we will do it. That's and I just admire them so much because they did sacrifice so what a, much. What a rich history. To do that. What a rich example. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you again for uh, our little epilogue here. And uh, again, people just tuning in, you can catch the conversation we had yesterday at WFIL.com. Just click on the podcast tab and down to the Tim DeMoss show, and you'll see we kind of list them uh, you know, time-wise front to back. So the most recent one's on top, and today's will be uh, up there as well about an hour after the show ends. So people can listen to both parts to get a fuller picture, and if they'd like to find out more about the book, The Devil in Pew Number 7. They can you know, Google that or Amazon or whatever. And they can also go to your site. We mentioned yesterday you do speaking. So if people wanted to have you come in and speak, they can do that to uh, you know, look you up that way as well. RebeccaAlonzo.com is the site, uh, Alonzo with a Z. Good stuff. Thank you again. 
Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share, and I pray that it does help your listeners to um, to just know, you know, if they need to forgive, God can give them the grace to do that. Amen. So thank you. Very good. Thank you, Rebecca. Rebecca Alonzo, again, The Devil in Pew Number 7 is the book. You can find out more about that on her site, Rebecca Alonzo with a Z. Dot com. It's 435. We're going down to 44 this evening, 50 the high tomorrow, 42 the high on Sunday. A lot of clouds, a couple showers over the course of the weekend as well. Sixers home this evening against Indiana, 730. Flyers at Edmonton at 9, and the Eagles are at the Rams in Sunday night football at 820. Carson Wentz has a stress injury to his back. Uh, no surgery required, but several months to heal, it looks like. And so it's questionable whether he's going to jump in or not. They're just let Nick Foles hop back in the quarterback position and take the team from here. He is traveling with the team. Uh, Carson Wentz is, that is. We have, uh, as we switch gears now, a very special guest. His name is Dr. Everett Piper. And he is uh, the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And he's written a book called Not a Daycare. And so uh, we're going to bring him in here. I get the right button over here. How you doing, sir? Uh, what's going on? Are you all right? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. My privilege. You're the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and the author of Why I Am a Liberal and Other Conservative Ideas. Been featured on Fox and Friends, NBC Today Show, uh, Glenn Beck Show, and many others, and also participate on a variety of councils relating to cultural engagement and public policy, which is great. And uh, now you have a brand new book called Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of abandoning truth. Thank you for, again for joining, and uh, I'd love for us to tell tell us about that new book. What what led you to writing it, and and uh, and what what went into the process of putting it together? Well, it's essentially a reaction to the Snowflake Rebellion, the uh, lunacy of some suspensions and microaggressions and trigger warnings, and uh, the call across college campuses from coast to coast to basically silence anybody who has an idea that might make you feel uncomfortable. And in this book, I tell the story of here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, where we are a Christian college and a conservative university, and we don't apologize for either. Uh, we actually stand for the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. And you can't enroll here as a student without knowing that. But in spite of that, I actually had a student come forward a couple years ago and complain after a required chapel because he was offended by the message. And I asked the speaker, well, what was the message about? And he said, well, it was on 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you don't know, it's the quintessential love chapter of the Bible. Love is patient, love is kind. And I was incredulous. I actually had a student who was offended by a homily on love. So I wrote an op-ed, an 800-word op-ed in the local newspaper, and I essentially said, young man, that feeling of discomfort you had when you heard that sermon is called your conscience, and you might want to listen to it. And if you expect me to coddle you rather than confront you, if you expect me to comfort you rather than challenge your character, go someplace else. And I concluded by saying, my land, this is a university, it's not a daycare. Well, that led to a viral uh, wave where three and a half million people actually clicked on that story, and that led to some media exposure uh, and uh, just the book that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Dr. Everett Piper, our guest, you used some phrases there. And just to assume folks don't know what they mean, maybe you can quickly define uh, the word safe space, trigger warnings, speech codes, and snowflake. Um, well, if you're watching the evening news, you see the students and even the faculty protesting from Berkeley to Brown because they don't like a speaker. They don't like Ben Shapiro, a conservative too, because he has conservative ideas. So they boycott him and they protest him and they try to silence him and remove him from campus. Or after the election of Donald Trump, students were crying and demanding counseling centers. And actually, 
uh, they were being provided by administration and faculty with these counseling centers that were equipped with, I'm not kidding, Play-Doh, bubbles, coloring books, and videos of frolicking puppies to make them feel comfortable. These are uh, the um, reactions that students and faculty are having because an idea isn't popular, and therefore they'd rather silence the idea rather than challenge it, have a logical debate, and decide who's right or wrong. You know what the academy used to be all about. Now, if you go on a campus or if I go on a campus and we've got an agenda or an idea that is perhaps contrary to the political left and the politically correct agenda of that campus, rather than debating us, they will actually protest us and in some cases violently remove us from campus. There's a university in the East that actually uh, a faculty member who was hosting an unpopular speaker actually was attacked by the students and her hair was pulled and her neck was wrenched and she had to go to the hospital to get a brace because she did nothing other than have an author who had ideas that were challenging the students on that campus. Yeah, well, and I mean, your, your book, I know, among other things, is calling on universities to, to change that culture, to rather, you know, seek truth instead of what what seems safe, which will lead us to that other, one of those phrases, safe spaces. I guess it wasn't very safe there, I, from what you were describing. Yeah, the irony, well, it's the, it's the duplicity of the left, frankly, the hypocrisy of the progressive left. They'll say things like, I can't tolerate your intolerance, or I hate hateful people, or I'm sure that nothing is sure, or I know that nothing can be known. They'll say, I'm absolutely confident there are no absolutes. And then they argue for safe spaces while making everybody who disagrees with them feel incredibly unsafe because of the anger and vitriol that they're showing all under the banner of tolerance and love and inclusion, I might add. So they throw off the branch upon which they sit every time they open their mouth because they don't believe their own premise. They don't want safety. They want to have power. It's ideological fascism rather than academic freedom. They want to control. They want to have power. They want to sequester the unpopular idea. They want you to think like them, act like them, walk like them, talk like them. And if you don't, you're revolting. They will crush you. That's fascism. That's not freedom. And that's what you see on the college campus today. Dr. Everett Piper, author of the new book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. One of the words we tossed out there, snowflake, which, uh, you know, my understanding would be basically young adults from the past 10 years or so who are more prone to taking offense and, you know, not resilient like the, the folks in the past to be able to talk through some, you know, talk through differences. Um, uh, there was a, a, a looked up at the Financial Times said someone deemed too emotionally vulnerable to cope with views that challenge their own particularly in universities and other forms once known for robust debate. Yeah, and the snowflake, they're so fragile and gentle that they'll wilt, they'll melt under any pressure that uh, makes them feel uncomfortable. You know, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia tells us that the great lion Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Right. We'll paraphrase that. The great lion of the liberal arts, the academy, the ivory tower, is not supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be good. There's a huge difference between goodness and safety, and we should much better prefer the first and not the second when it comes to education. Yeah, well, and when you when you, when you think about where that comes from, I, I guess the idea of Snowflake is that it's unique and each one is special, and kind of like uh, in the cover of your book, you uh, there's a one line where it talks about we've exchanged uh, the, the idea of give me liberty or give me death to give me a trophy or I'll throw a tantrum. Um, do you think that sometimes it really – some of this starts at home a bit where parents need to be a little bit more – not that they have to be you know, harsh with their kids at all, but help them understand life is difficult. You're going to have to work through differences. People will differ from you, but that doesn't mean that you 
you can't still be friends. You can be very different and still just talk. Let's let's talk through these things. There's no question it starts in the home. Uh, you know, it starts there. Uh, it starts at the pulpit. It starts in the home, like friends rather than our children. And we've allowed them to parent us more than us to parent them in many cases. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely the case. So I, I agree with you completely that uh, parenting and the fact that it starts in the home and it starts in the school. You know, uh, Richard Weaver wrote in 1950, in 1948, seminal work titled Ideas Have Consequences. And his point was, ideas have consequences. What we teach early on in the classroom and in our home is going to bear itself out in our culture, in our courts, and in our country. And when we teach our kids to be narcissistic, self-absorbed, um, uh, trophy-getting little entitled brats, <laughs> what yeah. we're going to see in our culture. And don't you see that even in government right now? Yeah. I can't, I can't help but – tell me what you think about this. Uh, because I try doing this radio show, and I've done radio for 30 years. Um, I try doing interviews and preparing for them to put myself in other people's shoes. I hope I ask good questions that think through what the other person has gone through, whether it's an actor or somebody who's a musician or it doesn't matter, pastor, what's it like for this and that. So I wonder if sometimes the idea of, you know, helping people, like, of course you shouldn't, if someone differs from you completely, you shouldn't beat them up or you shouldn't uh, make them feel unsafe or, or abuse them in some way. So that part of that aspect of love is true, but then then it gets twisted and carried to an extreme. The culture seems confused as to what love means. Like they have the accepting part down, kind of, but not the discipline or boundary part. Like what what God what God's word says in our case. So if you're a believer, God's word says there's life, and saying no to that, and no to that, and that's wrong, and that's right. Well, let me respond with a story about my time on Bill O'Reilly's O'Reilly Factor. Sure. I was, invited to, I was invited on his show once, and the conversation turned to the issue of tolerance. And I responded to Mr. Mr. O'Reilly, and I said, you know, on your anniversary, did you send your wife and I tolerate each other? <laughs> and there was a pregnant pause, and, and I said, well, I would suggest you probably didn't, because if you did, it didn't end very well. And the reason for that is tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says... I don't necessarily like you. I certainly don't love you, but I'll tolerate you. But love is a superior virtue. Tolerance says, I don't care. Do what you want. Love says, I care deeply. Now stop. Love is an inferior Excuse me. Tolerance is an inferior virtue. Christian charity, love, is a superior virtue. There's a huge difference between love and tolerance. And we've dumbed down the definition of love in our culture today to nothing but tolerance, and it's actually an insult to the human being rather than a compliment. If I sent you a card tomorrow saying, thanks for having me on your show, I, don't, I tolerate you. I don't think you would feel complimented by that, nor should you. <laughs> right, right. Well, outside, uh, or maybe put it this way, too, how much progress do you think, you know, we live in a broken world, so uh, you know, until we get to heaven, it's going to be this way in some shape or form, but how much progress can be made outside of you know, a heart revolution. If, if a person knows God, he or may sh she may be more inclined to do the things that you're talking about. But even if you're not a, a God-fearing person per se, some of what you're writing in the book could still be challenged to thinking in a good way, right? Absolutely. Jordan Peterson, University of Toronto, is saying some very similar things right now. In fact, I have a portion of my book that covers him before people knew who he was so well now. And I don't know that Jordan Peterson makes any claim to Christ, but he is a common-sense man who recognizes the fallacies of our time, and he's confronting them in the academy, and he's saying, no, I'm not going to play this silly game. There are answers that are right or wrong. There are, there are morals that are true and false, and we're not going to start 
playing uh, the silly game of using gender-neutral pronouns in the, in the classroom. I won't do that. And because he simply said those things, he became incredibly popular because of the common sense and the recognition of natural law and how those boundaries are necessary for personal freedom. Chesterton told us that if you want liberty, you can't get rid of the big laws of God. I'll say it a different way. If you get rid of the big laws of God, you don't get liberty. You get thousands of little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum. So even uh, P- Peterson understands that. Even our founding fathers who weren't Christians understood that. When you get rid of the big laws, ten, ten, ten simple laws, that's all we need, ten. And Jesus narrowed it down to two. Right. But when you get rid of the ten or two, you don't get liberty. You get thousands of man-made little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum, down to the point where they're now telling us how to use the ba- bathroom, and telling us that we've got to use gender-neutral pronouns when communicating with people. That is not liberty. That is more and more legislation and law. Dr. Everett Piper, author of Not a Daycare, our guest, back in just a second. More on Tim DeMoss Show and WFIL. Live and local, it's the Tim DeMoss Show, weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Our podcast continues. It's 450 with Dr. Everett Piper, author of Not a Daycare. One of the aspects we want to talk about is what do you say to parents who are trying to consider these things in terms of what school to send their child to and how to approach the culture? Well, I'll start with a negative and I'll end with a positive. Okay. The negative is be careful. Be very careful because the university system today is a meat factory and they take pride in ripping your kid's heart, mind, and soul out. So be careful. And I would argue you should stop spending money to send your kids to an institution that takes joy and teaching him everything opposite of what you tried to instill in him while he was a young man in your home. That's the warning. That's the negative. Now, the positive is this. There are still a handful of colleges out there that are really pursuing truth. Find those colleges and universities that believe in truth with a capital T rather than all, than all these postmodern constructs. Trust that school and no other with your kid's mind and soul. Finally, there are some boot camps that I would highly recommend you send your kid to while he's in high school. Worldview Academy is one. Look up Worldview Academy and send your kid there when he's 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age to understand apologetics and how to defend logic and a biblical worldview. And then Summit Ministries in uh, Colorado Springs is one that you could send your son or daughter to when they're jun- excuse me, uh, seniors in high school or freshmen in college. And it's a two-week boot camp that does the same thing. These are ways that you can equip your children to actually be prepared to defend the faith that lies with them. Okay. Those are good things. And, you know, I should step back for a second. The very beginning, when I got the press release about your book and about having having you on the show, uh, it actually stemmed from something locally, which I'm bringing in here because you're mentioned about, you know, beware what's out there. Uh, not to be an alarmist or something, but you want to be real and understand. Uh, Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, their president, just like you're the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan, the president of Ryder in Lawrenceville, which is in our neck of the woods, uh, banned Chick-fil-A because it doesn't encourage, quote, a welcoming environment. I just wrote an article on it two weeks ago in the Washington Times um, about this very thing. So under the banner of inclusion, this president at Ryder University just excluded chicken sandwiches because they're offensive to the student population and they don't represent the inclusive environment that he wants to teach there. This is lunacy. At a time when our world is burning and we've got got economic issues, we've got political issues, we've got sex trafficking, we've got conflict in the Middle East, 
We've got uh, all sorts of problems in Europe right now that we see on the nightly news. Uh, the words of D.K. Chesterton ring true every time we listen to your show or turn on the TV that the most empirically provable fact of all of Christianity is human beings are evil, original sin. At a time when that is self-evident at every turn, we've got the president of the university focusing on chicken sandwiches because he wants to be inclusive, but doesn't recognize the exclusive message he's sending to everybody that wants to eat Chick-fil-A and just wants to be left alone and not make it a political issue. And I don't know about you, but waffle fries to me are very welcoming. So I'm not <laughs> sure what he's referring to. Go have some right now. <laughs> we never have enough time on this program. We have to slip in one more break. We'll wrap up our chat with Dr. Everett Piper, author of Not a Daycare in just a second. AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. 456 AM560 WFIL, WFIL.com. Coming down the home stretch here with Dr. Everett Piper, author of Not a Daycare. If you had to hope people came away with one thing from this book of yours that's new, what would it be? Pursue truth. Pursue truth. Look at the subtitle of the book rather than the title. The devastating consequences of abandoning truth. When we lose the measuring rod outside of those things being measured, C.S. Lewis, you can do no measuring. Stop and think about it. Lewis told us you can do no measuring without a measuring rod outside of those things being measured. So you have to have an objective standard to measure something, and you have to have that standard of truth to measure morality, to measure civility, to measure love, to measure tolerance. You can measure nothing unless you've got an objective standard and definition Truth with a capital T, to live life, and to engage with people. So what do I want people to take away from the book? The pursuit of truth is the ultimate standard for human liberty. That's good. Very good. Well, thank you, sir, so much for your time. And uh, just as a PS, do you blog, or is there a way for folks to keep in touch? Or I guess you write so much for different uh, Washington Times you just mentioned. They can just Google your name and see the latest thing you've written. Or is there any kind of a dialogue or forum every once in a while? If people want to, I, um, uh, I'll give you the, uh, my Twitter handle is Dr. Everett Piper. That's D R E V E R E T T T I P E R. Okay. One word. D R E V E R E T T T I P E R. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. It's Dr. Everett Piper. And I do write for the Washington Times weekly. It comes out uh, Sunday afternoons online and Monday in print. Excellent. That's very, very helpful to know. It's, it's good to continue the conversation that way as well. Well, again, thank you for your time. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. And they can get the book at notadaycare.com or go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com and just type in Not A Daycare and you can find the book. Super. I hope you enjoy the Christmas season, and it's a pleasure to have you on. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Uh, like, likewise, love to you, and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. All right, welcome. Bye-bye. Dr. Everett Piper, the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, he has been all over the place. Fox & Friends, Glenn Beck Show, O'Reilly Factor. NBC Today show, many others. And as he mentioned, he's in the Washington Times every week. Cool to have him on. Uh, you can catch a podcast of this program, by the way, at WFIL.com. Slip on out now. Jim Maxim will lead in prayer, and then we'll have Truth for Life with Alistair Beck. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to WFIL.
Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.